I appreciate, I uh, hope y'all enjoyed last Sunday, our Orphan Stand Sunday, and uh, hopefully uh, that inspired some of you to maybe share your story um, and help someone or maybe inspired you to maybe be a part of helping out with fostering or adoption. There's some folks obviously in our church that could be supported in that way, but in our community. So we uh, enjoyed that last Sunday and, and appreciate kind of going off our our sermon series for a while to do that. That's something we do every year and, and, and glad to be a part of that. Um, we're going to continue our series, Has God Left the Building? Has it felt like that to anybody? I can, There's a lot of kind of downer stuff going on in our culture right now and you can just kind of feel it sometimes and it does feel like, God, what are you doing? It feels like you've left maybe. And uh, a lot of us uh, have been ignoring uh, godly wisdom uh, a lot. In our culture, it feels like it, that we know better. And that's why we've been looking at this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians in that uh, first century because, you know, they had a lot of the same stuff going on. They were wondering sometimes, where God, where are you? And Paul was reminding them, put Jesus at the center, this will be okay. Still going to be some rough times, but it's, it's going to be okay. So I want to start today with an illustration that I think is really neat that I uh, read about. A guy named Daniel Cole wrote a book called The Culture Code. And in that, he talks about, uh, over the course of, of several months, a guy named Peter Skillman conducted this study where he took university business students that were at the top of their class, and he got them for this study. And he took a group of them, and then he took a group of kindergartners and they both were asked to do the same thing. They gave them 20 pieces of spaghetti, dried spaghetti, and one yard of tape, and one yard of string, and one marshmallow. And they said, now we want you to create as big a structure as you can with those items. Okay. The only rule is, is when you finish, the marshmallow has to be at the top. Okay. So you think about this, college business students at the elite and kindergartners. And you're thinking, I know how this is going to turn out. Well, the business students began diagnosing the task. They started formulating the solution, um, assigning the different roles to who was going to do what. The kindergartners, by contrast, they just jumped right in. They started working and failing and working and failing, trying again, and kept going. So the author of the book says, we presume skilled individuals like these business students will combine to produce skilled performance. But this assumption is wrong. They did this experiment dozens and dozens of times. And the, the kindergartners built structures that averaged 26 inches tall. Now that's just a little over 2 feet tall. But the business school students never made it more than 10 inches tall with their structures. <laughs> so he says this. We see smart, experienced business school students. And we find it difficult to imagine that they would combine to produce poor performance. We see unsophisticated, inexperienced kindergartners, and we find it difficult to imagine that they would combine to produce a successful performance. Individual skills are not what matters. He says what matters is the interaction between them. And he said the kindergartners succeeded not because they were smarter, but they succeeded because they worked together or they worked together in a smarter way. And they are tapping into a simple and powerful method in which a group of ordinary people can create performance far beyond the sum of their parts. You ever experienced that? And it's true. All these sophisticated, smart business students could not produce what these 
unsophisticated kindergartners did. And that's a, that's a good lesson. I think it's a lesson that the Apostle Paul knew about. He knew the, the importance of not necessarily, as this writer talked about, it's not necessarily working because they're smarter, but working together in a smarter way, in unity, having the same goal and the same vision. And Paul wrote about to the people in his culture that had become Jesus followers in that culture. He says, knowing your gifts, knowing your roles is very important. And fulfilling those gifts and roles goes a long way to achieving a couple of things that Paul knew was very important. And first of all is that relational unity. Relational unity is so important, especially within the church. And also accomplishing a vision or a goal that's bigger than ourselves. Now, maybe you've been in a situation where you've been a part of a vision or a goal or some kind of task where you were said, hey, this is what you got to do. And you're like, oh, man, this is, this is going to be difficult. This is going to be tough, too. And maybe you look around and you see the people, and maybe you're not familiar with these people, and you have to accomplish this goal. But you dove in with others to make it happen. And as everyone played their role and used their giftedness, not only was the goal accomplished, but there was this bond of unity afterwards where you looked around and go, man, we really got through this. How did we do this? And this unity of relationships, it was inspiring and it was fulfilling. You ever been a part of something like that? I have. I know probably all of you have. So I believe this is what Paul is trying to get across in our text today. The Corinthian church had a very talented and gifted and very diverse group of people in this Corinthian church. And they were all working, trying to work together. But Paul, as you know, as we've read in the letters, he's saying there's some dysfunction there. There's some disunity there. And we're trying to get that together. And we've certainly looked at some of that disunity as we've talked about a lot of different topics in this letter that he wrote. But that had kept unity from forming in these very gifted people, but the diversity. So Paul used a clever, he's going to use a clever and humorous illustration um, in this uh, particular chapter of the letter where he's going to try to get us to understand God's plan for the body of Christ. And that's really what the church is, the body of Christ. Now, disunity is not going to be a part of that. He says it can't be. There has to be unity. But unity does not mean uniformity. When we have unity, it doesn't mean everybody has to be the same because because there's so much diversity in this group. We can still have unity with diversity. And all of this, he says, has to come together with mutual concern for one another and love for one another and every, every member doing their part, doing their role, and making the whole body function to reflect Christ, as we just sang about, as the center. And that's important. So one of the things not only pastors and ministers get excited about, but I think teachers and coaches or people who are team leaders, they get excited seeing a group of diverse people come together and accomplish something bigger than themselves that is really helpful to some other group or person. When you see all those people come together and meet that need, but then also give God the glory. And there's been some things over the years in this church that just stand out in my mind that I'm so glad I've been a part of with a lot of y'all. I think about mission trips, going on a mission trip, and thinking a lot of these construction trips we go on where people go, I can't, you know, I've never built anything. I don't know how to do that. Can you swing a hammer? Then just come on, you'll be fine. And at the end of that week where we see a, a family who had a house made out of pallets and cardboard and pieces of tin, all of a sudden we hand them the keys to a house and you just go, wow, how did we do that? I didn't know how to build a house, but with the people who did and everybody that came on this trip and swung a hammer together and put up the walls and did what it took, now this family has a home and it's like, we couldn't have done this without each other and we couldn't have done this without God being a part of it. 
And it's a tremendous feeling. If any of y'all have ever been on those trips, you know how emotional it is to hand those keys over because you just go, how did this happen? You know, it happened because of God and people came together and it was about something bigger than just ourselves. I think about we're getting ready to have Christmas in Coweta here and for the last several years we've been a part of um, over 100 kids and families every year through this church get Christmas that probably wouldn't have Christmas because of difficult times. And you guys have pitched in. And, it, and when you first start it, you just think, oh, well, I'm do, all I'm doing is going and getting the name off of that tree or whatever, and I'm going to get those and I bring that. No, but it's so much bigger than that. There's people behind the scenes that are talking and interviewing and finding out who these families are that have the needs. And at the end of the time, we think, wow, 100 people now have gifts and their Christmas is going to be a little brighter because of us coming together for something bigger. Um, uh, one of my favorite things we did here but while we were building this building, and some of y'all were here and were a part of this, and remember, before we put all the drywall up and as we were kind of in the skeleton stage here, I think we had it, it was, the roof was on, but the, the walls weren't on yet. And we all came in here when the steel frames and girders were up, and we passed out one Sunday afternoon. Y'all who were here remember that. We passed out like 100 Sharpies, and everybody went around with Sharpies and wrote on the beams their favorite Bible verses and wrote their names, their family names. And we did this for a couple of hours one afternoon, and it was so fun. It was so cool to think about, wow, we are putting... God's word all over this building is part of the foundation of this building. Some of us wrote him on the on the concrete, and some of y'all were part of that. Remember, it was it was a fun day, and uh, you know I think about I know where I know where my name is right behind that wall there. If you tear the drywall off, that's where our family stuff is. That's where our scripture is. But it was something fun that say, hey, we were a part of that. And watching the building go up, I was amazed at all the different people that had to come together to make this building what it is. So that's what Paul is trying to get at. And he's addressing this Corinthian church on how they were handling these gifts and this unity that they needed to have. And apparently they were very gifted, they were very talented, and there was certainly diversity in that church, but they were not unifying together to use their gifts. Some were being arrogant that their gifts were better than other people. Some people felt less than and they didn't even want to be a part when you feel like you're not needed. Some were envious of other people's gifts. Well, mine's not as good as theirs, or I'm not as out front as they are. And Paul's saying, no, y'all are missing the point. And there was some division there. And some were more concerned about honoring themselves than they were really honoring God. And so Paul wants to address this. So we're going to look at chapter 12, starting in verse 12. And listen, I know this is kind of lengthy, but listen to what Paul says. And I think it's a humorous illustration that he uses, but... He really clarifies what he's trying to talk about. Listen as we have it up on the screen. Thank you. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized. We were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is made up... Um, is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. 
The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, so that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, if you are the body of now, no, this is what he says. Now you are, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts. Now, nobody laughed, but I thought that was humorous that body parts are talking to each other. Maybe that wasn't funny to you, but I think it was funny. And Paul has been writing this letter to these people who have got a lot of issues. And y'all know if you've been here for the last few weeks that there's been some serious issues, all this sexual stuff and, and people getting drunk at communion and all this crazy stuff he's having to address. So maybe he's trying to be funny here and lighten this letter up a little bit about body parts talking to each other. But notice what he says, the body, the unit is one unit, but it's made up of many parts. It's still one body. So it is with Christ. With Jesus, yes. Jesus says we are to be his hands and feet in the world. We are to be the body of Christ. Jesus came and he lived to 33 years old. Then he was crucified. Then he rose again and he stayed after his resurrection from the dead for 40 days and 40 nights. And then where did he go? He left. He went back into heaven. And you're thinking, what would, why would you turn this kingdom over to us idiots? We can't even handle an election, you know? We can't even count votes right. Why would you give it to us? But Jesus said, no, that was the plan from the beginning. I did what I was supposed to do, save the world through my sacrifice, and I've created and established my kingdom on earth, and now it's you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, living in you that's going to carry out my kingdom work. That's how it was designed. So it's one body but many different parts. We in Christ, Paul says, are all baptized into one spirit, into one body, regardless of our cultural background, regardless of our social status. And if you're a follower of Jesus here today, at some point you made a decision that says, I recognize that I have sin in my life, and that sin is a barrier between me and my Creator, my Heavenly Father. And I can't do anything about that. I can't get back in His grace because I've sinned against Him. But He gave us a plan, and that was Jesus' Son. And Jesus died. And you made that decision to accept Him as your Savior and accept what He did on the cross to restore you back to your Father. And that is recognizing that your sin separated you from God. And that only way you could be back is with Jesus. So you said, I want that. I don't want to be separated from God. And you took that and you confessed that Jesus was the Son of the living God, that He was your Lord and Savior, and that He has a plan for your life. And as we read in the book of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts talks about has the church and there's all these conversion experiences, all these different people and families. And after their conversion experience, they were baptized through water baptism into Christ and being immersed into water as an act of obedience saying... 
I'm burying my old life. The old Craig, the old way is now dead. And I'm going to be resurrected to a new way. And now I'm still the unique Craig that God made me to be. But now I don't live. But Christ, as Paul says in Romans, lives through me. And that is a new life in Christ. So the Bible speaks of that baptism, that water baptism. But it also speaks of this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that makes some people nervous when we talk about that because some people over the years have said to get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's got to be this weird thing where you're going to run around the church and handle snakes and be crazy and stuff like that. That's not. I'm not making fun of that. I'm just saying some people have made it into something that it never was intended to be. But the Holy Spirit, when we really are sincere about coming to Christ and we are baptized and we submit ourselves to that and we come up, we are gifted with the Holy Spirit. Now Christ lives in me. And you think about that, that's a powerful way for the the love of God to live in you. So what is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about baptism by water or, or, or baptism by the Holy Spirit? I think he's talking about both. And I remember participating in that. And when you become a Christian, if you just go, well, I'm going to walk forward to make mama happy. I'm just going to walk forward and say those words to make daddy happy or grandmama happy or whoever it is or because my friend did it and I thought it was the right thing to do. And you get baptized and there's nothing that changes in your life. You got to ask yourself, was that really sincere? Did I really mean that? If nobody sees any difference in your life after that, you got to ask yourself, was that real? Was that sincere? Does that person have the Holy Spirit? And I don't mean it's this necessarily a dramatic change like it was in Paul's life, but it was a dramatic change in Paul's life. But that is a journey. That is something that takes time. But people want to see that person's different now. They're not the same as they were. It really has made a difference. There's something different about them now. And that's why we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke we hear about that. The, uh, John the Baptist, when he baptized Jesus, he talked about when Jesus was to come. He says, I'm going to baptize you with water for repentance. But he says, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Does that sound like something you just go, yeah, I guess I'll take that. I mean, I should have said that with baptism and fire. You know, like the Baptist, you know, hardcore preachers say. But we laugh at that, but that is really the way probably John the Baptist said it. said, this is something that's serious. That that transforms your life. It's not just something we go, yeah, okay, yeah, good good deal. You know, made that decision. No, it should transform your life. Luke also quotes John the Baptist. I will baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, and the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There it is again. A transforming something in your life that will change you. And then John himself said, as he quotes John the Baptist, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man who you see And the Spirit come down and remain as the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So what we do know is there seems to be something more than just that water baptism, but baptism, immersion into that water and burying our old selves, but also immersion into the Holy Spirit that now God is going to live through me actively. And Paul is saying when we're baptized through water baptism, we receive that forgiveness of sins And we receive this baptism of the Holy Spirit that our new life can be guided. It's not Craig making the decisions kind of like, well, I feel this way about this and I feel tomorrow this way and maybe tomorrow I'll feel a different way. No, now I have the Holy Spirit who guides me in making those decisions every day of my life. 
And this is what enabled those first apostles who were regular, ordinary uh, fishermen and just regular guys who went out and said, my life has been transformed by Jesus. And then I saw him die and I saw him raised to life again. And then I saw him ascend into heaven. And we were all standing there going, now what? And he goes, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit and you'll understand. And when they got the Holy Spirit, were they transformed? We are living proof today that we have a church because of what those guys did. That Holy Spirit did act in their lives and they did what God called them to do. And it transformed them. And it transformed them to go out and say, you can be transformed just as I would. And that's what they did. They went out and invited others to experience that same transformation that they did. In verses 14 through 21, Paul continues this explanation of the body with this, I think it's a humorous illustration, but nobody laughs, so maybe you don't think it's funny. But all the parts of the body are valuable and unique in function in the body. Now, you know, I did this in the first, you know, just doing this is amazing to me. Like, my brain is telling my hand to do that. I know it's stupid, but it, it just amazes me, you know. And you have, you know, when you, you ever go to the doctor and they hit you in that little whatever that thing is and it makes your knee pop, that amazes me. Just the body amazes Now, if you've been sick or had some serious surgery and you've talked to the doctors about the way your body works, you probably have been educated in another ways of the body that works that you don't even understand. I'm fascinated by how our body works and God created it. And I think every time we make a breakthrough discovery about our bodies in medical science or whatever, God's going, oh, you're just now figuring that out. That's the way I designed it. Took you long enough. But I really think it's amazing to him as he watches his children try to figure out, like we watch our kids figure things out and go, wow, they're just now getting that. Isn't that cool? And God has figured that our body is designed. So he says some parts may seem weaker but are indispensable or crucial. Some parts we may think are less honorable, yet we treat them, he says, with special honor. Some parts are not presentable, so we treat them with modesty, while presentable parts need no special treatment. Now, I want to go back and read that again, but instead of saying parts, I'm going to say people. Some people may seem weaker, but are indispensable or crucial. Some people we may think are less honorable, yet we treat them with special honor. Some people are not presentable, so we treat them with modesty. While some people need no special treatment. Think about that. He is really talking not just about parts like in a car, but he's talking about people. And he goes, you know, but God, he says, has put the whole body together and he gives greater honor to some that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but it, that its parts should have equal concern for one another. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. And we appreciate that when people are so close that they do. Uh, they you know, they uh, suffer with us or they, or they rejoice with us when we're, we're being honored. Now think about giving greater honor to the parts or the people that lacked it. And I think about it throughout the Bible. This is exactly how God operated. Think about Moses. He says, I'm not a speaker. Why are you sending me to to Pharaoh, I can't do this. And that's because, yeah, you can because I'm going to empower you. So when you do it, you know it's not you, it's me. That's why I picked you. I need somebody weaker who doesn't really. If it was somebody that already thought they had the ability to do it, God didn't use them, did he? He used Moses. I think about Gideon who was hiding in a wine press, treading out the grapes, and God speaking to him. He goes, hey, I want you to lead this next battle. Who, me? Yeah, you. 
But you, I'm hiding. I'm, I'm, I'm a sissy. I'm scared. I'm not going to do that. And God goes, no, that's why I need to use you. So when you do it, you'll know it was me that did it through you. You think about when David was picked as king. Jesse went to Je- uh, uh, Samuel went to Jesse and goes, hey, I've got to anoint the new king. Let's see all your sons. And there's these older, bigger guys who come out. And he goes, not that one, not that one. You got any more? Well, we got David, the little shepherd boy. Surely that's not the one God's going to anoint. That's the one. That's how God has always operated. And you think about Jesus. Well, think about it. We're getting ready to come into Christmas. God picked two people to be the mother and father of God. That's not intimidating or pressure, is it? Mary and Joseph, who were they? They were seemingly nobodies, but that's who God picks to bring Jesus into the world and to be his parents. And then as Jesus grew up, he picked disciples. He didn't pick anybody that was a Pharisee or a Sadducee, did he? He picked regular fishermen, tax collectors, people who didn't make the cut. They couldn't have been a Pharisee or a Sadducee, or they would have been, but they weren't. He goes, no, that's the people I want to be my disciples. I think about Zacchaeus. Was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Well, anyway, nobody liked him. They made fun of him in short, but he was also a tax collector. He He stole from people, and they didn't like him, but he's up in a tree just so he could see Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm coming to your house today. Everybody's going, why would you go to his house? He doesn't deserve to be honored. And Jesus goes, maybe that's why I'm going to his house. Because maybe if I honor him, maybe it'll change his life. And we don't know what happened at lunch that day. But at the end of the day, Zacchaeus says, you know what? I'm going to give back everything that I've stole plus some. And Jesus said, salvation has come to this man's house today. You see, Jesus didn't just say these things. Paul didn't just say these things. They know that it literally works when we use those people. Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman. You're not supposed to talk to women in public, especially not Samaritan women. I'm going to honor her and it's going to transform her. So there should be no division. And these are, um, this person's good. This person's not good. This person has talents. This, everybody has talents. And there needs to be equal concern for each other. One part suffers, we all suffer. When one part person is honored, we all are honored. And we take a part of that. Now, I've always appreciated over the years in the church how people do take care of each other. And I'm telling you, I, I feel for people who don't have a church home when they're going through hard times. If any of y'all have been through a hard time, you understand that. People, when you're in the hospital, people bringing you meals, checking on you. People cutting somebody's grass while they're in the hospital. When they're, all, all these different things. I, there's so many stories. And you go, that's the beauty of what Paul is talking about here. So when someone has something happen to them, we want to be concerned for them. If one person is honored, we rejoice when somebody, oh, you got the raise. That's awesome. You got the new job. You graduated. We celebrate these things and we honor. And when someone says something to us and honors us, it makes us feel better, doesn't it? We stand a little taller. We feel good, like, oh, you've got beautiful eyes, you've got beautiful hair. Oh, I'm so proud of you, you did such a great job with that. And we are honored, and we, we, it feels good when people recognize us, and it's not just ourselves to do it. And Paul's saying that's the way the body of Christ, the church, should be. I was able to officiate at a wedding this weekend, and um, I, I'm thinking about this sermon, because I'm a nerd, and I think about my sermon all the time, okay? So I'm thinking about it, and I'm watching all these different things that take place in a wedding. And I've seen it lots of times, but because I was preaching this uh, on Sunday, I was just watching as I go to the, you know, the rehearsal 
on Friday night, and there's all these different people, and you know everybody's kind of tense on Friday night. He's like, "Oh, we can't screw this up tomorrow," you know, and uh, and things are going. But I'm look, you know, it, it's it's all coming together. And uh, they were saying, "Oh, you know, on Tuesday there was a 60 percent chance of rain on Saturday," and we're so thankful. We just prayed, and now, and y'all notice how beautiful it was yesterday. It was an outdoor wedding, because you can imagine. So all these things are starting to come together. And I noticed the people that work there. You see people setting out chairs and. You see people setting the tables for the dinner, and there's all these different things going place. Then I get there last night, you know, a few hours before the wedding, and there's people lighting the candles, and they're putting out and getting ready for the dinner, and there's all these different things, and everybody has a different part. I'm noticing there's so many different people that have different parts, but they're all crucial. There's some people that are just wearing these headphones like I got on, and they're talking, going, are the grooms, are they getting ready in there? Are they goofing around still, you know? And all this kind of stuff is going on you're hearing, and there's all comes together, and then the wedding finally gets down to it's getting ready to start. And it's like, man, what a beautiful picture of what Paul's talking about. So many people had to come together to make this happen, and it did. And one of the neat things about this particular uh, wedding was is uh, I knew uh, uh, both the young man and the young lady. And the young man used to play guitar for us uh, a lot here over the years. His name was Lance, and the young lady. Her twin brothers, I coached in baseball with my son for years, and so I knew the two families. It was fun. But they were supposed to get married in May, and, you know, of course, COVID hit, and they had to postpone. But between, I think it was in March or May, I think she got really, really sick, not with COVID, but with something else. And, y'all, she almost died. And so all of that to come to that day tomorrow, you can imagine how emotional it was for them to say, wow, this has finally come about after all that we've been through together. And so last night, um, and, I, and, I, and when you do a wedding, you know, it, it, um, it, it can go on and on and on. Y'all know what I'm talking about. So I'm, 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 the wedding's been done. And it's been fun. I had this great meal. And, you know, I'm like, okay, they're going to do the cake, and they're going to do this. And I'm like, I'm not staying for dancing. i got to get out of here, you know. So um, we, we, they finally cut the cake, and they're starting to move. They say, hey, y'all that are sitting in this area, we've got to move all these tables out of here because this is going to be the main dance floor, you know, where the mom and the, and the groom, you know, all, all the dancing takes place. And so all of a sudden I'm watching all these people who had different roles in this wedding start moving candles and tables and chairs and just getting it all out of the way. And I'm going, here it is again, this perfect picture. It didn't matter if you were the wedding coordinator. It didn't matter if you were this or that. You were a part of moving all these tables out so that the the dad could dance with his daughter so that the, the groom could dance with his mom and all this could take place. And it just was a, a beautiful picture. And we think about parts of life like that when everybody works together and how beautiful it can be. And that's exactly what uh, Paul is talking about here. So now, if you don't remember anything else about what I said today, remember what Paul says here. Now, you are the body of Christ and each of you is a part of it. You all are the body of Christ. Hey, I'm here for the first time. He's not going to call me out, is he? No, but you are. If you're here, you're part of the body of Christ, and we want you to be a more integral part. And he talked about in verses 28 through 31. I know y'all heard some of those things, and you go, uh, working miracles and all that. Don't worry about that. Paul's saying, no, desire the greater gifts. And what he's really saying, I believe, is don't desire things that will bring attention to you and make people go, look how great he is or she is. No, don't desire those. It's a rhetorical question, but he really the answer is no. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We are the body of Christ. Y'all all have a part. Why are you not a part here if you're not? Think about that for a minute. If you're not really a part of it. Now, I used to, there used to be this phrase, and please don't take this personally, but 
that, that preachers used to use. And, and you know what we call people who only come on Sunday mornings? Smos, Sunday morning only people. Okay, that's what we used to call them. You, know, you get trouble with that. All they do is come on Sunday morning. They don't get involved any other way. And some of you are probably mad. Oh, I ain't coming again now. You call me a smo. Now I'm just saying that was just a term. Okay, but we we said that not because we were mad at those people, but because we were like that person's so fun. They're so talented. Why can't we get them more involved in the church? Because they would be a great catalyst for our church. And so that's the uh, part that we want. You want to be a part. I'm just visiting. I'm just too busy. I'm too old. I'm too young. Why do you not feel a part here? And I'll be honest with you, our staff struggles with that sometimes. Why can't we get them to be a part? What can we do? And we always are trying to think of ways to make the on-ramp easier for people to be a part. But a lot of that is our fault. We haven't made it easy. We haven't made it convenient. We haven't made it in a way where you can be a part. But guess what? At least a part of that is your fault if you're not involved. Because you've got to be a part. You've got to want to be a part. And you've got to do your part as well. So I say, I'm committed to working on that and helping people feel more of a part. But I also want to encourage you and challenge you to be a part of what is it going to take for for you to be a part. And we let you try a lot of different things. You can even serve here before you join. We like that, actually. We like people to join or start serving before. So... The question is, going back to my first illustration, if I put y'all this morning, just said, all right, this group, I'm going to give you 20 pieces of uh, spaghetti and some tape and some rope, and y'all got to come up with something. How would you do with that? Could you come up with something working together? And when I think about how that whole um, idea worked out where the kindergartners were better than than the college business students, why was that? Well, it made me think about something Jesus said. Unless you become like what? You won't enter the kingdom of God. What? A little child. Well, they're brats. What do you mean, little child? Drive you nuts. Been home with me all this time. You know, no. But there's something about them that they're humble and they're curious and they're dependent. And they have this sense of wonder. You know what I'm talking about? And as adults, we lose that sense of wonder, don't we? That, well, what are we going to do now? This is going to be awesome. It's, oh, it's always, always you know, a bunch of spaghetti. Uh, you know, how would you react? You know, if your tape got messed up or your spaghetti got broken, would you throw it down and walk out? No, let's do it again. No, let's do it again. We can do this. We can do this. And I think about little kids, and I think that's what Paul's saying. Unity. Not uniformity, but unity in the middle of diversity. We can do amazing things, and that's how God designed the church.